Well, thank you for leading us in worship. Please be seated. <clears throat> this morning, uh, we do have a lot to celebrate, but I'm a little bit sad because we're con- concluding this sermon series, A Wider View of God. It's been fun and a joy for me. I hope it's been a joy for you as a congregation to get to hear from different members of our congregation, different generations, different ethnic groups, uh, all kinds of different people, and just hear about uh, how, how they see God, which person of the Trinity is most important, to hear uh, the story of the gospel. And so this morning, as we bring it to an end, uh, the question or the focus is, what do we do with this? What do we do with a wider view of God? And so to answer that question, I'm going to invite you to follow along with uh, a few verses from John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 23 through 27. We always come to the story in the middle, and so this one too. Jesus has been asked the question, and in our text, it picks up with Jesus' reply. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while I'm still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid." So far, the reading of God's Word. There's this this beautiful moment in John, in the Gospel, that's uh, a few other places in Scripture, where Jesus speaks of all three persons of the Trinity together in one or two sentences. Throughout this series, we've heard from different people who feel closest to Jesus, who feel closest to the Father, who feel closest to the Holy Spirit. And we've also heard people that, maybe rightly so, have questioned the question and said, well, how could I pick just one person of the Trinity? The mystery of who God is and of how we come to know him fully is one that we'll never fully answer until Jesus comes again. Because as we've said in this series, no one person can know God fully because God is so much greater than we are. He's beyond us in time and in space, in knowledge and in ability. God is more beautiful, more complex, more good. We, we would say better, but it didn't work with my flow. I've been on vacation. You guys have to give me a break. And we find this paradox at work, I think, that God is beyond our ability to know him fully, and yet God continues to be the object of our worship, our study, and our attention. So we don't know God fully. We may not even grow that much in our knowledge of God. Yet we continue to be intrigued by him, drawn to him, in awe of him. So what will we do with a wider view of God? Well, let's start with the worst case scenario. The absolute worst thing that we could do with this beautiful wider view of God is nothing. We may see God in some new way. We may glimpse some moment of awe or beauty in others or through others. But then we have no response. We just let it fall flat. Jesus explores this possibility in the parable of the sower. Jesus isn't uh, foolish. He understands that many people, when they see God, they will end up doing nothing. 
And so Jesus tells this story. He says, imagine a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path and was trampled on, and the birds ate it. Some fell on the rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Still other seed fell uh, among thorns, which grew up and choked out the plants. Now still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. When, uh, then Jesus explains this parable to his disciples. I got ahead, sorry. So we're done with that part. I, w- I just want to make the point that Jesus used the language of his day to point out what is still a truth in our day. We don't do a lot of sowing and reaping. But Jesus says this is what the meaning of the parable is. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear it. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and not be saved. Those on rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a little while, but the time of testing, they fall away. And finally, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who, who hear, but as they go on their way, are choked out by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those who are of noble and good heart, who hear the word, who retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. We still have these same situations today. Dallas Willard, a Christian author in his book called The Divine Conspiracy, he says that if we're ready to respond to the good news, then three questions will necessarily come up. The first question is, does the gospel that I preach through my words or through my life, does the gospel that I preach have a natural tendency to cause people who hear it to become full-time students of Jesus? Second, would those who do believe it become Jesus' apprentices as a natural next step? And third, what can, my, what can we reasonably expect would result from people actually believing the substance of my message? So put Dallas Willard's questions in simpler terms. The good news of God's kingdom and God's family requires or invites a response. We've said throughout this series that in order to have a wider view of God, we need to pursue God and we need to do it with people who are different from us. A simpler way of asking Dallas Willard's questions are uh, to put it that way. Do you really believe that you need to pursue God and that you need to pursue him with people who are different from you? If you do, what will you do with that wider view of God? I want to suggest this morning that most of us are happy enough to do the first thing or certainly to say we're going to do the first thing. We're happy enough to say, yes, I want to pursue God. But the second thing, pursuing God with people who are different from us, that falls for us somewhere maybe between feeling unnecessary and feeling impossible. As with most things that God tells us, I don't think we give up on them because we think they're wrong. We give up because we think they're too difficult. So here's what God says that he will do, what Jesus says that God will do when we gain a wider view of God and take our first steps of obedience. Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my commandments. And then he says, my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. And so this morning we celebrate that Young An and Hyun Jung and their family have loved God 
and obeyed his teachings. And that God has come and made his home with them. We celebrate that he has done that at River Park Church as well. Maybe you have only considered in an academic sense or in a little bit that Jesus wants to come and make his home with you. That he wants to reorder your home and not just the the building where you live in and where your bed is, but your whole life. Jesus says, when Jesus says, the Father and I will love them and make our home with them, he doesn't mean four walls and a few people. In the first century and in a collectivist culture, home was the four walls and was a solid exterior door, but it also was an inner atrium which was full of rooms where many different nuclear families would live. And so home was also the center of family life and social life. Home was the center of economic life because many families ran a family business. And so when Jesus says, we will come and make our home with you and love you, he means that God will enter into your personal life, your family life, your business, your finances, your social activities, your religious observance, everything. Just to make the point, uh, I'm not just saying this. Jesus, when he, in the Gospels, tell us that he came to live with Peter and Andrew in their home in Capernaum. And you can see, we actually, in the top left there, we know the actual geographical spot where Peter and Andrew's home was, and that's a picture of it. Peter and Andrew lived in that house. Their spouses and their children lived in that house, as did other siblings, nieces and nephews. And also their mother lived in that house. And we can assume previously their father did as well. You can read this story in Mark chapters 1 and 2. For Peter and Andrew, their family business was fishing. They did the the actual fishing, but their wives would have dried the fish and taken them to market. The younger kids would have fixed the nets, and the older kids would have helped with the fishing or with the cleaning or with the market. Every person in the family was involved in the family business, and every person contributed something else. And then Jesus comes to live with Peter and Andrew in their home in Capernaum. Mark tells us that Jesus comes into this house and begins to make his home there. Mark chapter 2 tells us that when the people of Capernaum saw Jesus at the synagogue, which is just right across the street from Peter and Andrew's house, they heard that Jesus had come home. Jesus upsets everything about Peter and Andrew's normal life and their family life when he says to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus reorders every part of his disciples' lives, both then and now. For Jesus to, and the, for God the Father, for Jesus and the Spirit to come and make their home with us means that they will be with us in the most intimate and important parts of our lives, but also that they will train us in every part of our lives to live as Jesus lives, to love as the Father loves, and to share and to give as the Spirit does. In other words, if we are members of the household of God or the family of God, then God intends to change our lives too, to make us more like Him. This is what we celebrate in baptism. In baptism, we don't, first of all, celebrate the promises that parents make, and and we didn't hear any promises from Joshua. 
What we celebrate in baptism is God's promise to love us and to make his home with us. This is a good thing. Because each of us is different. A single person, a huge family, a nuclear family, or or a larger family of grandparents and aunts and uncles. Each person, through their baptism and through their growing in community with God's people, becomes more like God as they become more like the person whom God intended them to be. And so each of us, we know, has different experiences, different energy levels, different interests. And yet these things, these different things, all come together in a powerful and beautiful way. As each person contributes different skills, different talents to the family business, to the family purpose, and the family vision. Not fishing, not our individual family businesses, but God's family and His business. Which brings us to the third point this morning. Communal sanctification. We know that in a family, we are, or at least are supposed to be, accepted regardless of our ability or appearance or actions. Kids are accepted in love no matter what they do or how they look. Parents are loved and respected whether they make a lot of money or a little bit or none. We may experience tensions outside in the world, but when we come home, we experience rest and healing and safety. When we come home, we do, when we come home and we don't experience those things, we miss them. We long for them. We hurt because they are not there. At home, we are accepted, loved, healed, encouraged. At home, we find rest and we are forgiven. Yet like all children, all of us come to an age in the family of God, an age of maturity where we begin to resist the work of our parents. Some of us actively push back against God's work. Others of us just passively withdraw, pull away. In short, we could quote the prophet Isaiah that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, one way or another, has turned to our own way. Every family we know cares for one another, protects each other, supports each other. In a family, we can always look around. We can always say, this is how my father affected me. This is how my sister or my cousin uh, helped me. But in the family of God, I want to suggest to you this morning, and I want to challenge you a little bit, that I think our relationships have become thin. That it would be more difficult for you and for us to look around at this room and say, this is how she has affected me. And this is how he has blessed me. The challenge will become greater the more and the more different that we are. So we might be able to say something like that with someone who's in the same generational group as us or the same ethnic group. But what about someone in a different group? What about someone who sits way on the other side of the sanctuary? Does the familial love of God, does the family love of God extend beyond the world's dividing walls? You see, the Bible and Jesus always calls us deeper, to deeper intimacy, to greater love. And love, I was telling someone earlier this week, love doesn't need the law because love always goes beyond what the law requires. 
And so God calls us to love one another. Why? Because he loves us and has made his home with us. And God calls us to keep our promises to one another, like the promise we made to Joshua this morning. Not because we can do it, but because he keeps his promises. God calls us to love one another and to make our home together. Paul, uh, but, but we struggle with this as, church, as churches and as Christians. And that's nothing new either. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, that's the way the English word is translated, he says, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. If you learn something about the first century, then you learn that guardians had the role of tutors or school teachers. Guardians were the ones who taught uh, grammar, who taught history, who, who basically were the school teachers of the day, and they often worked in the family home. So Paul says to the Corinthians, you have 10,000 guardians in Christ. And of course, he's speaking, uh, he, he's overdoing it, right? They don't literally have 10,000 guardians. But I thought about it today, and I said, you know what? That is literally true for us today. You can turn on any TV. You can connect to Wikipedia. You can watch any preacher on YouTube. We don't just have 10,000 teachers. We have 10 million teachers. You can learn from anyone about anything. But we do not have many fathers. You see, a father pulls you out of class and says, stand and look over my shoulder. Watch as I do what I do. And then later he says, help me. Not because he needs the help, but because he loves his child. Help me do what I do. And still later he says, now you do it. You do what I do and I'll, I'll train you and, and help you. And then even later he passes it along. He says, do what I used to do. You can do it now. I will remain with you. I'll watch over your shoulder. Even when we feel like God is watching us, even when we feel like God is far away, still, even then, he's actually helping us. And So when Paul says, imitate me, he's taking on the role of the Father, just as Jesus did to his disciples. Called his disciples to imitate him, to follow him. Paul invites us, just like Jesus invited his disciples, to have a more intimate relationship with one another. A relationship where we participate in one another's daily lives. Where we care for one another, not just in the abstract, not just with our words, not just once a week, but in the actual nuts and bolts of our daily lives. All of this builds to those two words that uh, we started this point with, communal sanctification. That when we think about a diverse family, one that, one that God has put together, his purpose is communal sanctification. He's given to one an, us to one another as a community, that's the first part, so that we can learn from one another through encouraging encounters and through challenges and difficulties and differences so that we might grow to love one another and to love God more. That's the sanctification part. More diversity means more learning, more blessing, and even more wide view. Communal sanctification means that as we grow closer to one another, we also grow closer to God. Because we are pursuing him ourselves, we are also pursuing him with people who are different from us. 
So what if we actually did that? What if we actually followed God and not just on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, but in the nuts and bolts of everyday life with people who are like us and people who are also different from us? We need both the perfect example of Jesus to follow and we need the living examples of others to follow too. In these days and weeks and months post-COVID, I'm testing this hypothesis, and so I want to test it with you as we close this morning. I think that there's, excuse me, there's, there's the, the paradox that we started with, and I want to end with a paradox as well, and here it is. On the one hand, people have more need than ever for deeper relationships. But on the other hand, people have less energy than ever for superficial conversations. That's my hypothesis, that we have more need than ever for deeper relationships with other people, but also we have less energy than ever for superficial conversation. In other words, we're not willing to wait as long as we maybe used to be willing to wait. We're not willing to wait for superficiality, both in people who are like us and with people who are different from us. We feel an urgency and a a hunger to go deeper to have to find meaning and to pursue it with others. Our lives have been confronted with death, with limitations, with barriers. We're longing for something more, but exhausted from not being able to find it. Brothers and sisters, the way forward for Christians is to join Jesus in making his family. I don't say this in a simplistic way, but in the way that Jesus means it. The Father and I, when we are obedient, the Father and I, he says, will love you and come and make our home with you. We will go deeper in relationship with you and change and transform every part of your life, your family's life, your social life, your work and finances, your religious commitments, everything. We will make our home with you. The future for us as River Park Church is that we become a church that is not just one big family where we can, we can see and, and smile and wave at each other, although that's wonderful, but also that we become a collection of spiritual families where people find real protection and deep relationship and practical purpose together. It's a collection of spiritual families where we really can come home and experience rest and healing and safety where we can invite anyone else who's interested in Jesus, who wants to be obedient to Jesus too, to come and experience acceptance and love and healing, encouragement, rest, and forgiveness with us. Doesn't that sound good? A wider view of God leads to joy. It leads to peace. It leads to hope. And it leads to love. And these are the four themes we're looking at in Advent. A wider view of God enables us to be a diverse family where we are truly better together. So as we close, I want to close with this one last reminder. The perspective of a white-only church is very narrow. The perspective of a Korean-only church is very narrow. A black-only church is also narrow. A church made up of only women pretty narrow perspective. 
church made up of only men, that would be far worse, I think. Only older people, not ideal. Only young people, neither. On and on it goes. God has made us diverse because he believes and intends that we be better together. He desires to come and make his home with us, with all of us, together. God is not making his home with some of us and leaving others to wait. He has revealed himself to all of us and to each of us in different ways. And then he's given us to one another so that we might encourage and strengthen each other, challenge one another, and build each other up. So let's do that together as we step into Advent, whether it feels too early or not. Let's look forward to pursuing that collection of spiritual families, that family life that God is calling us to. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we do come to you this morning, and we do say thank you for all of your blessings. Thank you for the love that you share, that covenant love that you show in baptism to Joshua this morning, and that you remind us each and all of your love for your people and for us. Thank you, Lord, for the love that is persistent and does not end. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can celebrate our communion with you. That we are invited to be part of a new family with a new identity and a new name. A name not based on our accomplishments or on our shame, but a pure and holy and good name, the name of Jesus. And so, God, we bow at the name of Jesus and confess that you are Lord, not just with our mouths and with our hearts, but, Lord, equip us to confess with our lives and with our actions as well. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you prepare for communion, please stand.